This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. The first electric lighting system that used overhead wires began service in Roselle, New Jersey on this year. It was built by Thomas Edison. After 14 years, the Brooklyn Bridge over the East River opened in this year, connecting the great cities of New York and Brooklyn for the first time in history. Thousands of residents of Brooklyn and Manhattan Island turned out to witness the dedication ceremony, which was presided over by President Chester A. Arthur and New York Governor Grover Cleveland. Designed by the late John A. Roebling, the Brooklyn Bridge was the largest suspension bridge ever built to that date. One of the most deadly and contagious diseases of this period in United States history was smallpox a new, highly contagious disease that would take the lives of three out of every 10 people who contracted it back then. A disease that would eventually kill hundreds of millions of people across the globe. The year was 1889. The nation had battled with malaria cholera and yellow fever epidemics, but this new smallpox disease was different. It was passed from one person to another very, very quickly. It was a disease spread only through human contact. The disease didn't affect animals or insects, nor could they transmit the virus. Sometimes a person could catch the disease by touching the skin lesions or wounds of an infected person. The virus could also be transferred through droplets of moisture from coughing or sneezing or by touching clothing, bedding, or other things that were used by someone that had the disease. 
Smallpox affected people of all ages, and those who survived could be left blind or disfigured by ugly scars called pockmarks. Few diseases were so destructive to humans. It was a disease with, at that time, no cure. The word smallpox brought fear, absolute fear to Americans, as the disease could easily spread through whole communities. In Minnesota, an 1883 state law required all school-aged children to be vaccinated against smallpox. In the state, the Anti-Vaccination League was formed by conspiracy theorists and freedom of choice advocates after a smallpox outbreak that year. An outbreak that resulted in over 1,000 cases, including 28 deaths in 48 counties. In southern Minnesota, authorities were going as far as to get court orders to remove people from their homes suspected of being infected. One of those cities who was proactively investigating those who were believed infected was the city of Albert Lee. Albert Lee, located in southern Minnesota in Freeborn County, had a population of just over 4,000 people and is located on the shores of Fountain Lake, Pickerel Lake, Albert Lee Lake, Goose Lake, School Lake, and Lake Chapo. The city's early growth was based on agriculture farming support services and manufacturing, and it was a significant rail center. At one time, it was the site of Cargill's headquarters, among many other large manufacturers. It was November. The fear of smallpox in this southern Minnesota community was as strong as ever. The city had already been chartered for 20 years, and they'd been through 10 chiefs during this time period. In 1889, the chief was Police Chief J.J. Sullivan. Dr. L.J. Thomas was on the local board of health, and he was informed by one of the chief's special policemen that a local man, 23-year-old Fred Wing, had contracted smallpox and was still living in the home of his father, Charles Wing. Dr. Thomas went to the Wing home on South Newton in Albert Lee to investigate the report, where Charles Wing confirmed that his son indeed had smallpox. Dr. Thomas asked Wing why he had not informed the proper authorities instead of waiting and potentially exposing the neighborhood. Mr. Wing replied he didn't know. It wasn't anybody's business. Dr. Thomas didn't argue with him, but he suggested having Fred Wing removed from the home and taken to the hospital so the home could be disinfected, especially since Charles Wing operated a weaving plant at the time and lived near a school. Mr. Wing refused to have his son removed from the home. Dr. Thomas was able to place a quarantine sign on the home before going back to town to speak with the chairman of the Board of Health. The decision was made that the only safe way to proceed was to remove Fred Wing from the home, to take him to the pest house, and then to thoroughly fumigate the home. A pest house, short for pestilence house, was also referred to as a fever shed or a plague house. It was a type of building used to house people believed to be infected with communicable diseases, often used for forcible quarantine for the safety and the welfare of the community. Dr. Thomas consulted the city attorney, ultimately receiving a writ of court order from Justice Stacy, authorizing officers to remove Fred Wing from the home. The court order was given to Albert Lee's special policeman, Judson Randall. Judson Harrison Randall was a special policeman for Albert Lee. 
Back then, the term special policeman was used to describe a temporary or part-time officer appointed by the chief or the sheriff. When not serving the city, Randall was an experienced wheat buyer and reportedly put those talents to use for S. Messenger of Glenville and C.M. Wilkinson of Albert Lee and was an active member of the Robson Post Gar. That's G-A-R, the Grand American Republic a fraternal organization composed of veterans of the Union Army, the Union Navy, and the Marines who served in the American Civil War. Judson was born in Nova Scotia back in 1848, and at the age of seven moved to the United States and was an only child to his parents, settling in Madison, Wisconsin. He served as the youngest soldier in Company D, 2nd Wisconsin Cavalry, during the Civil War. Judson moved to Freeborn County in 1870, and he later married Nancy Wiggins in 1877. Dr. Thomas then returned to the wing home. He was trying to compromise with the family with other arrangements, such as the family moving into one room of the home so the rest of the property could be fumigated. According to the local Times article, Mr. Wing stated he would not listen to any such arrangement and that if Fred was taken from the house, it would be over his dead body. Judson drove to the home of Albert Lee Police Chief J.J. Sullivan and asked him to accompany him to the Wing home to remove Fred Wing, as he, he thought the chief's presence might make everything go a little more smoothly, according to the Times article. When the chief and Judson arrived back at the Wing home, Dr. Thomas and Officer Torgerson were already there. Judson read the court order to Charles Wing, to which he replied his son was not in stable enough condition to be moved. The chief and Judson then left, and they brought back another doctor, Dr. Frank Blackmer, to examine Fred Wing, after which Blackmer said there was no danger in moving him. In the meantime, Charles Wing had fastened his door to keep the officers out of his home. The chief asked to be admitted into the house, but according to the Times article, he was informed he would come in at his own peril. The chief then cut the screen door, unlocked it, and went in, instructing Judson and Torgerson to go and get Fred Wing. Judson was met by Wing's wife, referred to only as Mrs. Wing in the Times article. Mrs. Wing was armed with a broom handle and flourished it over Judson's head. She was pushed aside and the handle was reportedly taken from her. The three officers and the Wing parents were then in the kitchen of the home with Mrs. Wing attempting to block the stairs leading up to her son's bedroom. As Chief Sullivan pushed her aside, Charles Wing reportedly picked up a flat iron and was attempting to throw it at the chief before Torgerson stopped him and took the iron away from him. As the chief attempted to open the door to Fred Wing's room, Judson was trying to keep Mrs. Wing away from the door. Charles Wing then grabbed a broomstick and a stove lifter in his right hand and struck Judson over the head, hitting him across the side of his right temple. Charles Wing hit Judson with such force that the broom handle broke into three pieces. Judson's cap was knocked off and he stooped to pick it up and he cried, Sullivan, that old son of a gun hit me with an awful blow. Judson was then taken to Blackmer's office by Thomas, where an examination revealed a gash of several inches on the side of his head that required three stitches. Judson complained that his head hurt considerably, but his wound was not considered serious at the time. His symptoms weren't considered serious until the next morning, when his family could not wake him up. His wife Nancy became worried and informed Thomas of the situation. 
Blackmer was summonsed and Judson was found to be in an unconscious condition. Doctors A.C. Wedge, John Von Berg, Todd, and Stevenson were called at various times throughout the day. After Judson's condition started to fail rapidly, the doctors decided the only hope was an operation to remove a clot from his brain. Judson's family objected as they reportedly still thought there was hope, but by that evening, Judson was too weak to withstand an operation. Judson Randall died the next day, November 6, 1899, two days after the altercation at the wing home. An autopsy was performed by Wedge, Todd, Von Berg, Stevenson, and Blackmer, and the doctors testified at the coroner's inquest that the autopsy discovered Judson's death had been caused by the pressure of a blood clot on the brain. A clot four to five inches long and three inches wide was found just below Judson's wound. And above his right ear, a piece of his skull had literally broken loose. That piece of skull was held somewhat in place by tissue, but radiating from that piece were three fractures in the skull. On the opposite side of Judson's head was a smaller blood clot, which the physicians could not explain. They ultimately ruled that an operation would have removed the clot from Judson's brain and there would have been a chance to save his life. Soon after the coroner's inquest into Judson's death, Fred Wing was removed to the pest house at his own request. Charles Wing was placed under arrest the day after the altercation and charged with assault with intent to kill. After Judson's death, the charge was changed to murder in the first degree. Charles Wing was later acquitted after a five-day trial with crowds that thronged the courtroom, according to the Times as a jury found him not guilty after Judge Kingsley declared the order sending the policeman into the Wing home was not valid. Charles Wing and his wife would later relocate to Texas. In his death, Judson Randall left behind his wife Nancy and their 22-year-old daughter Estella who is referred to in the Times article as Mrs. Ed Thomas. As do 99% of all the men and women serving today all across our country, Judson Harrison Randall was simply doing his best to serve his community. He understood service before self, the importance of working for a greater good, trying to make a small difference in the community where he and Nancy raised their daughter. Albert Lee City Records indicated that there were other times periodically where Judson was employed as a special policeman for the city. Apparently, when there was a need, he was there to help. Details in this story were researched and discovered by Albert Lee Police Officer Jason Taylor and Linda Evenson from the Freeborn County Historical Museum, who both worked to historically document the story of Judson Randall. As you heard in this episode, much of the data also came from the local Times newspaper. You can see pictures from the newspaper on Judson's page at officerdownmemorialpodcast.com. Thanks to the efforts of Officer Taylor and Linda Evenson, in 2020, Officer Judson Randall was finally recognized as fallen in the line of duty by the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association. Recognized for his service and his sacrifice 131 years after his death, service and sacrifice that will now never be forgotten. Thank you for spending the time to listen, 
learn about and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.